Hello and welcome to the Radical Reformers podcast. I'm Andrew Laird. This podcast is for people who want to understand what it really takes to make a positive impact in public services. It features leaders from councils, the NHS, central government, charities and social enterprises, as well as think tanks and social investors. This is about policy and the implementation of policy and the grit and determination it takes to run successful public services. It's not about politics. Politics does not feature at all and the discussions are all the better for it. It's also about the stories and personal journeys of the leaders I speak to, the challenges they faced and the lessons they've learned. Running and reforming public services is incredibly difficult and I'm very grateful to these inspiring leaders for taking the time to share with others. So before we get into it, I just want to take a second to thank my friends and colleagues at Mutual Ventures for supporting me to do this podcast. My day job at Mutual Ventures is about supporting public services to be better, more sustainable and more connected to communities. This means working with central government departments to help them build bridges between policy development and local implementation. It means working with councils to help them plan for the future. And it also means working with NHS trusts to help them find their place in the new health and care system. So I hope you enjoy this podcast and that you get as much from it as I have. And don't forget to subscribe on the website or follow us on LinkedIn or Twitter to make sure that you never miss a future episode. And you might even want to go back and listen to some of the older ones. Welcome everyone. This episode is with Jack Shaw. Jack is a researcher and academic focusing on local government. He works with the Bennett Institute and also with IPPR. If you're on social media and interested in public service reform, chances are you've come across Jack. He produces some excellent analysis on local government issues. Our conversation takes place the week after the autumn statement and we get into that, we get into what that means for local government. We talk about what is next for levelling up and the various funds attached to that. We also talk about future models of local growth funding. At the minute, there's a whole myriad of funds that local authorities have to apply for, and we talk about potential alternatives to that to reduce the burden on councils, but also to give them a lot more freedom and flexibility around how they use their funding. And finally, we talk about devolution and public service reform more generally. It's a fascinating discussion, particularly for those of you interested in local public services. So with no further ado, let's hear from Jack. Jack, a very warm welcome onto the podcast. I think a lot of people listening will be familiar with you um, if they're on social media and are interested in public service reform and local services. I know I certainly find the analysis that you produce invaluable. Um, but you wear a number of hats around the academic research space. So it would just be great to hear in your own words who you are and what it is you do. Thanks, Andrew. That's uh, far too kind an introduction. Um, very happy to be here as, as well. So you're right, I wear a couple of hats. Uh, by day, I work for the Institute for Public Policy Research, where I largely work on skills policy. Um, but for the last decade, I've worked in Wyvern for uh, local authorities and across the local government uh, sector, and I'm here in that capacity today. Fantastic. And with that mix of things, the 
that you do. Um, do you focus mostly on local government? Yes. So I've spent um, I've spent my time in a couple of London local authorities. I've worked at the local government association. I've worked for the Labour Party for in the shadow local government team. So I've worked all across local government issues, um, but from different vantage points. And I continue to do that in the work that I do today. Fantastic. And one of the things I'm very interested in is the bridge between central government policy decisions and local implementation. So I imagine that's something that you consider quite closely as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the kind of beauties of going from local authorities into think tanks back to local authorities is that you can bridge that policy and practice uh, gap. And that's why I really like working with and for local authorities. Excellent. So we're recording this a week after the autumn statement. Um, So we both had some time to reflect on it and try and absorb what was in there. What do you think about that statement in terms of its impact on local government? So I think it was a mixed bag. There were some welcome uh, items in there and some not so uh, welcome. And I think in the context of the environment that we find ourselves in that's about the best we can hope for so for example we saw uh, council tax flexibilities i personally think they're a good thing i think in principle we should support uh, flexibility across the local government sector however we know that the government is doing that uh, in order to uh, kind of create an incentive for local authorities to raise that tax but also to outsource responsibility to adequately fund local authorities and so we need to be cognizant of that but that's that's not a bad uh move i don't think second is social care now i'm a little bit more skeptical about that lots of the monies are not new monies um but again that is still uh welcome and in the council tax flexibility we saw two percent of that five percent increase uh given over to the social care uh precept there were no measures um to protect local authorities from inflation, which I would have liked to have seen. And it follows uh, some work that I've done recently that showed that the levelling up fund and the share prosperity fund um, were uh, being eaten up essentially by inflation by the tune of about 500 um, million. So there was some resilience that the government could have provided there, um, but it didn't. And then I think probably my last point would be on local government finance. It looked quite generous on the surface. And uh, the Institute uh, for Physical Studies and others have suggested um, that's the case. But I think the anecdote I would draw is that, you know, it's the equivalent of rather than jumping off the 10th story of the building, you're now jumping off the 8th story. The, you know, the impact <laughs> is still the same, I it's think. All, it's all relative, isn't it? Yeah. And it's I mean, it's highly contingent on what we see in the local government finance settlement we know that, for example, that this spending review period might be slightly easier uh, to manage than anticipated before the autumn statement uh, because we're expecting something like uh, £9 billion uh, increase in spending power for local authorities across the next two financial years on the assumption that they increase council tax by the maximum, whereas we're expecting far smaller increases in the years after uh, 24 25 So that's a big concern. Yeah, I was doing some uh, workshop with our mutual ventures team yesterday, and the um, you mentioned the IFS there. Their their graph, which shows the spending increases between now and the election, and then after that, 
it just drops off incredibly steeply. So it will be very interesting to see whether that whether that is an eventuality that might never happen. And just that, I guess that all depends on inflation, gas prices, all all of that stuff. But just to to pick up on a couple of things you said there, you're you're absolutely right that the IFS in one of their covering slides claimed that local government was a, was a I'm not sure if they used the term winner, but certainly did better relatively than maybe local government has done in previous budgets. But that council tax flexibility. So I, I agree with you. I think it's a good thing. But it, it was very much presented and the reaction to it has very much been a good chunk of that adult social care increase would come from councils exercising their full ability to to raise council taxes, which, you know, council tax is a regressive tax. So, I mean, I guess there's some questions that people have around that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And I, I say it's a good idea in principle. I think in, in periods of normality, it's good to give local authorities that flexibility. They may, they may yeah. well want to, you know, do a big piece of regeneration work that they want to cost. And as part of that cost mix, that includes uh, increasing council tax, for example. But it is quite cynical if you provide additional spending power through council tax alone and not with, you know, additional funding. So I think we should really measure the increase in council tax once we see the local government finance settlement. And I think there is one thing different um, this year that we haven't seen in other years. We have to some degree in the pandemic, but Increasing council tax is good for local authorities in terms of how much they can uh, generate in terms of funding, but they will be acutely aware this time round of the the burden placed on local communities and how close some of our communities are to tipping over the edge. And so I think we're unlikely to see restraint because local authorities desperately need that money, but we're certainly not going to see a universal application of council tax to the 5%, I think. So... The government's feeling that all local authorities will raise that is misplaced. And if that's misplaced, no, Exactly, exactly. I mean, I was personally really pleased to see the extra funding. And I think that there was some new, I'd love to get your opinion on this, but it felt to me that there was some new funding there for adult social care. Not all of what was talked mm. about, but it felt like there was, there was something like a billion and then 1.7. That feels really welcome. And my question is that it's always felt to me that, Council services have always played second fiddle to the NHS because, um, you know, I think for politicians, most people feel that they might fall in at ill at any time, whereas nobody really wants to think about getting old. Nobody, you know, nobody wants to think about that. Do you, do you think this is an acknowledgement from the government, the important role that adult social care plays in itself, but also an easing pressure on, on the NHS? I think that would probably be too generous to the government. I think it's certainly welcome that they've provided uh, additional money. Um, And it's very clear from the Local Government Association and others that adult social care and children's services in particular face acute demands. And therefore, lots of the deficits that we're seeing in local authorities are coming from those areas. I think the government has just been realistic and recognises that because of that demand, it has to stump up some cash. I don't think it's fundamentally revaluated the importance it places on social care vis-a-vis the NHS, sadly. And I think that's something that needs to happen over the next 
decade. And when I speak to people in NHS trusts and so on, they say to us, look, it would be better place to provide social care with more money because it, you know, what we don't want is people going to the NHS and spending eight hours in an ambulance. It's all about prevention and early intervention, isn't it? And the NHS can't provide that and social care can. So I do think we need a an ongoing debate about what that re-evaluation looks like so that social care is adequately funded. Yeah, you and I are both very interested in levelling up and the various pots of money that are are allocated to that. And I think it's fair to say that levelling up as a concept has been on a real roller coaster this year. So you had that brief uh, moment with Liz Trusts and Quasi Quatang where it felt like the levelling up fund might might have gone completely and there was a refocus on, on enterprise zones. Where do you think levelling up is at now in terms of a priority for government? I think uh, Rishi, as the Prime Minister, has been quite clear that it's a, a priority. It doesn't feel as central as it was to Boris Johnson's agenda, but it certainly feels more important than it was to Liz Truss's agenda. So perhaps there is a silver lining uh, there and we should maybe be content about that. I think Gove is is a really good um Secretary of State, I think he, he's capable. He has uh, power across Whitehall. He has experience uh, with the Treasury. So I think he adds a lot of value. But there are so many, and I don't want to deploy the poly crisis or the perma crisis phrase particularly, but there are so I many challenges. Ter- I, I do love those terms, I must say. I mean, either they're they're both very relevant. It's multiple and ongoing, the crisis. Yes, yeah. No, you are right. You are right. Um, maybe they are very accurate phrases, actually. But there are so many challenges and politics changes so quickly. So, for example, uh, Ipsos Mori does a, a issues tracker every month. And I've been watching that for the last couple of years. And inequality has, has always been there or thereabouts in the top five. And then the November one came out this week and I'd seen it drop down to seven. And my point is that we can't take it for granted that uh, levelling up is going to be a political priority forever. And so we need to secure short term wins. And so far, we haven't been able to do that. But I hope it stays on the agenda. Yeah, absolutely. So from from my reading of the documentation around the autumn statement, it looked to me just looking at the document purely that both the levelling up fund and the shared prosperity fund had both been squeezed. Is that a, is that the right conclusion to draw? So I don't have any particular insight at this stage, but I don't think that's been the case, largely because it it would feel politically unpalatable, but also because I've heard that that's just not the case and they are still there somewhere. It's just difficult to find them. I did actually hear, Jack, I did actually hear from one of our council partners who had been in conversation with their uh, DLOC representative and Mm -hmm. they, they were told that the even though there is no particular amount against the Share Prosperity Fund in the document for this year, it's there somewhere in another budget line. Yes, I I think that would probably be in the departmental budget line. I don't know how these things work in the Treasury, but maybe because it's so close to being spent, it's moved. I'm not sure we're supposed to know how they work. No, I think the opaqueness is part of the design, (laughs) not a flaw. Yeah, absolutely. Um, To keep us all guessing. No, I think they're they're still there. There's a big question mark for me around when that spend will take place. So you'll know that the Shed Prosperity Fund... 400 million of it was meant to be uh, allocated this financial year. 
Now, that's looking pretty much impossible, I think, because once the government takes the decision on those investment frameworks, the department will need to allocate that funding to local authorities. Local authorities will need to allocate that funding to community groups. So while it might feasibly make its way to organisations right at the back of this financial year, they're not going to actually get to spend that. And so the Share Prosperity Fund, which was dubbed a four-year four-year programme, in effect became a three-year programme after we introduced the Community Renewal Fund and is now looking like it will be a two-year programme. It's, it, it's getting smaller uh, and there are some issues and concerns associated with that. In terms of the levelling up fund, we haven't seen the the bids yet. And uh, from research that I've done on the first set of allocations, the 1.7 billion allocated uh, last year, the spend of that has been really slow. So I'm not so much concerned about the level two bid, in part because local authorities are already struggling to spend what they should have received. And that's no fault of local authorities. That's as a result from inflation and uh, contract related issues. But the government has a responsibility to provide local authorities with certainty so that it can spend that money and so that businesses uh, have some continuity and certainty. And it's failed to do that today. Yeah, certainly. I mean, you, you're one of the few people, um, possibly the, the only person I know who has looked at that speed of spend rather than just the amounts, I think. The broader public, even people with an interest in public services, look at allocations and then forget about it and think, right, well, that's all that's all being spent. But as you referenced there, you've done some analysis on the speed of the spend. And there are two things to say, really. The funding that was awarded last year, as you've said, it has been slow to be spent. And we've observed that as well. And it's very difficult for councils to reach agreement with contractors and things with inflation fluctuating the way it is and that that's caused a lot of delay but then the secondary problem about round two is just as the decision on which bids to award funding to drags out this year's window gets smaller and smaller and you know there is still money that councils have committed to spend within their bids this year and it's just very confusing for them to know what will happen with all that yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this kind of poses a challenge really to the integrity of these funds, partly because the government has hamstrung itself. So in in arguing and making the case, we see this in the Sheriff's Prairie Fund, that some of this funding has to be spent within year. Yeah. Now that the government has delayed it so much and that's not possible, the government's got a couple of options to choose from and it could scale back that funding. It yeah. could... It could tell itself a lie, you know, it could rationalise that this money hasn't been spent and therefore it's not needed and and recoup some of it. Or it might have to say, you know what, we need to be more flexible about this. It's been kind of held up in the department through no one's fault other than politicians. I think the civil servants are working as hard as possible. Clearly, clearly the investment zone policy uh, naturally has delayed the progression of the levelling up funds and share prosperity funds. But that has as you say, real implications. And I think the government has yet to come to terms with that and will need to show some flexibility as a result. Yeah. So taking inflation into consideration, so even from the end of June when most of the the current round two levelling up bids would have been submitted, a lot of the costs included in those would have increased a lot. What do you think the government will do about that or 
what would you do if you were in their shoes with regards to those bids? Would you, because I, I mean, I guess there's a number of options. You award fewer bids and you inflate them um, or you ask more areas to scale back their ambition. It's quite a difficult yeah. position. Or there's a more radical one, which is that you inflation proof them, which I think in the context of the current public finances up. I understand why the government has not chosen to do so, but there is a, an irony in the fact that the government is promoting lots of uh, capital spend and investment projects, which it says are central to growth. The previous administration published a growth plan, which ironically set out all the projects that it would fund. Yet at the same time, we're saying that all these smaller projects that local authorities are funding are not kind of sufficient of of investment. So there seems to be a trade-off between a policy of pro-growth that they're trying to achieve and then in reality asking local authorities to scale back on some of those projects. I think what you'll see is for the for the first tranche of monies that has been received from the levelling up fund, local authorities are inevitably going to have to downsize those. There's a slight uh, Orwellian doublespeak, the the government has spoken about resizing, but I suspect there's no prospect of increasing those. Um, and also there's a concern that the government just hasn't engaged with the sector on this issue. It says it has. There's been no formal engagement. I've spoken to more than half a dozen cities. So, you know, the large unitary councils you would expect that would be first in line for engagement. None of them have had any engagement. So I'm quite sceptical that the government's actually done any work on on that issue. For the second uh, tranche of the levelling up fund, I suppose that that's where it's all to play for. As you suggested, there are two or three options. I suspect it will look very similar to the first and we will just be asking local authorities to do the same with less or less with less. But ultimately, the impact of that is that these projects are going to be less impactful in communities, right? Whether it's a some new provision for your town centre, which is designed to increase footfall and that gets scaled back and the impact is going to be less. That's not going to be as helpful for your local businesses that are already struggling. Whatever it is that local authorities are choosing, um, that's going to have an impact or, you know, that's a, a loss of opportunity rather of to have some kind of good impact on communities. Yeah, well, fingers crossed, we will find out by Christmas time what what's happened there. Um, I imagine there's a lot of hard work going on at the minute within departments trying trying to figure all of this out. But certainly in the Chancellor's statement, and I think certainly in the document itself, there was a commitment to make those announcements this side of the new year. So let's wait and see what happens there. But I think um, it's unclear at the minute is the best thing we can say. There are lots of options, but I certainly I'm not getting a clear steer from anyone I speak to on which exactly of those options they will go for. So I want to talk a little bit now about potential future models of local growth funding. So um, at the minute, there's a whole myriad of funds. There's a levelling up fund, the Share Prosperity Fund, which we've talked about. There's also things like the Community Ownership Fund. Then prior to that, there was the Towns Fund. Um, and all of these kind of fall into a bucket that you could put a big label on saying local growth. And I know that you've written in the MJ and other places about the complexity and multitude of these funds. And I certainly know from my own experience how much effort is needed to apply for a slice 
of these funds. So can you set out for listeners what the challenge is here for local areas? And um, do you have any ideas about alternative approaches that might work better than just this constant need to bid for funding and prepare investment plans for funding? Yeah, absolutely. And if if I could quickly go back to your first point yes. uh, for this this question, I used to be a speechwriter in Parliament and for local authorities, so I'm very used to using language that gives politicians flexibility. And what we see in some <laughs> of these funds is that in their and you find this out in the speeches before the government actually officially announces it. But what you see in some of these speeches is that initially we were talking about the Shepherd's Prosperity Fund by October and then it became yeah. by the autumn and then it became yeah. before the end of the calendar year and you see the slight changes in language so I'm not sure what one's next but I'm sure we'll know, yeah. we'll know soon enough whether or not it is coming after Christmas. <laughs> uh, in terms of your, your question, challenges on local growth funding and alternative um, approaches, it's a really hot political um, potato isn't it at the minute. So I'm I'm particularly critical of the competitive bidding regime. I don't really know what the theory is that underpins that. I've heard Gove and others in the past say that it uh, incentivises collaboration or it promotes um, innovation. I've not seen particularly much evidence uh, for either of those. I think the idea that local authorities would deliver projects without consulting with local institutions and partners that they work closely with is, is probably not too reflective of the reality. There are existing fora across local authorities that exist precisely to promote economic development and so forth. So, for example, in the town's deal, what we see, in, and the government issued some new guidance on this only last month, I think, or this month, what we see is the government said to local authorities, we want you to set up a town deal board, which is responsible for the decision making and governance of, of the town deals programme, which I thought was kind of unnecessarily prescriptive, really, because those local authorities might already have existing foras that they want to speak to those those organisations in. And now they have to create another layer of engagement on top of what they might already had. So that's the kind of really annoying prescription level that I think government should, shouldn't just get involved with and should leave local authorities to decide. Um, I think the so I don't think there's the, it's particularly innovative or it's uh, particularly incentivises collaboration. There are lots of challenges around the uh, notice that local authorities are given to apply for these uh, funds, the cost related to competitive bidding. And I still think, and I don't know why this hasn't been answered, but England gets a raw deal because all, all local authorities in Scotland and Wales get capacity funding. That's funding to help them put together a bid. Only those areas in England that are deemed priority areas get that. So there are a whole yeah, sway. I, saw, I did see that, yeah, that... Um yeah, those who are you know, the Welsh councils we, we work with all got that capacity funding, mm. whereas only about half of the English ones were eligible for it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, j- less than that, close to a third. So there's about 100 priority groups in some Sorry, I meant, I'm, I meant the ones that, that we'd worked with. Sorry. Uh, OK, of course. Yeah. Um, well, in that case, you've worked with lots of the ones that have got capacity funding. So you're you're lucky. Yeah, um, yeah about 100 of these local authorities get some form of capacity funding depending on what the fund is so there are hundreds more that are left 
out. And yeah. there's, there's a slightly conflicted message there, I think, isn't there? So on the one hand, the government is saying, look, we want you to apply if you're a priority area and maybe reconsider not doing so. On the other, it's quite explicit that um, not being a priority area doesn't exclude you. And yeah. we see from the allocations that it's set out that that quite a few non-priority areas uh, do receive money. And there's a challenge around what constitutes a non-priority area. So there's the very obvious one that in some of these funds, Barnsley is, is in the second priority area, I think. Um, and uh, Rishi Sunak's constituency is in a priority area. So I don't think there is anything politically uh, motivated about that but the kind of opaqueness about the assumptions that underpin the funding and how funding decisions are arrived at does create cause um, for concern so I think there are a couple of issues another one I would draw on is um, the inability to join these uh, funding streams up and to give them kind of real long-term certainty so there was no reason why we needed a one-year pilot community renewal fund we were in fact when i was at the local government association i played a very very small role in looking at the design of the uk share prosperity fund and what local authorities wanted and that was in 2018 there's no reason that we had to get to the end of 2020 without having um, a uk spf set up so fundamentally there's just a challenge for government to do a little bit better and prioritize these funds but we need to join them up because what we're seeing is that with the EU funding that's coming to an end, now local authorities might want to extend some of them programmes, but because they haven't got the certainty from the UK Share Prosperity Fund and the investment frameworks, they don't know whether that's possible. And just final point on that, I saw uh, from uh, Northern Ireland actually the other day that 1,700 jobs were anticipated to be lost at the end of uh, EU funding for them. Now, Northern Ireland gets a comparatively very small amount of funding compared to England. No official analysis has been done on this, but I would hazard, hazard a guess that somewhere in the region of 10,000 jobs could be lost, not to mention all the provision that some people rely on. And in 2018, I was speaking to organisations that were delivering specialist training for people with special educational needs or for people that had just come out of prison. And they were saying, well, look, we've got funding to to the end of this year, to the end of 2018. But we we can't bid for another round of EU funding and there is no UK funding online. So there's been a drip feed over the last four years, really, of of provision being lost because we haven't been able to join up lots of that um, yeah. funding. In terms of alternative approaches, because of the kind of opaqueness of uh, the, the funding regime, I think we need a needs based model. You know, we really need to be clear about who is deserving of these fundings and specifically what the objectives are. So some of our funds have really broad objectives. So you could make the case in all of them that everyone is in need in some respect. Um, so I think that's particularly uh, relevant. I also think that we need to and I'm sure we'll come on to this in a moment, we need to be more kind of evidence based about what we want to achieve. And by we, I mean the government. So it wants uh, these interventions to boost pride in place, but it doesn't really know what places have deficits in civic pride and which places have it in bucket loads. So it, it feels like a a measure that is unmeasurable because the government just doesn't doesn't know its position on that. So I think the government needs to be a lot 
it all clearer and open some of some of those assumptions out to scrutiny. So I think that would be a good approach going forward as well. So I think, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right about the criteria and that there was some criticism around the levelling up criteria, which seemed, I think one of the main things was that it was quite heavily weighted around transport connectivity, which obviously would have um, meant rural areas scoring quite poorly in terms of being eligible, you know, sorry, scoring well in terms of being eligible for categorization and things like that. So there's definitely something about an agreement about how this is measured, particularly as you're suggesting, should those funds be joined up? You know, I think that's going to be something that's really important. So there's there's a whole range of questions there, which we won't get into right now, but are certainly there to, to be answered in the future. On, on your point about about competitive bidding and was it Michael Gove or the government at least talking about how that encourages collaboration? I, I would say my experience of this supporting council areas was that the levelling up fund, which was competitive, it was competitive. It didn't didn't encourage that much collaboration. Actually, it was, you know, we 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 want to try and get our full allocation for our council area, whereas the shared prosperity fund, which wasn't on the face of it competitive and each council area had a nominal allocation before the process, you find places much more relaxed about working together because they felt that they weren't going to lose out by working together. And, you know, I think this is a human relationship thing as well. You know, councillors in neighbouring councils don't always get on that well. They're not they're not always the same political colour. Um, but my experience was that the non-competitive pots of funding that, that council areas were bidding for, doing investment plans for, encouraged more collaboration. Yeah, I think you kind of uh, implicit in your point as well is around the role of multi-level governance. So some of our funding streams go directly to district councils. Some yes. go to combined authorities and therefore require... Yeah those local authorities within that footprint to work with the combined authority. So there's a, a point around that, I think. But if I could just go back to the point you also made about rural communities, and it just reminded me of another really good example of of how the funding regime isn't as adequate as it should be. So we've got the Shared Prosperity Fund. I think that's jointly managed. I can't remember uh, whether it's DLUC, DFT, or uh, the Treasury, because I think all three managed the levelling up fund. Um, so yeah. I'm not sure if all three managed the share prospect fund. But what we saw after the SPF perspective, well after the SPF uh, prospectus was published, is that out of nowhere, DEFRA introduced this £110 million rural um, prosperity fund. Now, no one seems to know where that comes from. The only, the bottom of it that I got to was that DEFRA essentially was just late to the game. Yeah. But that didn't particularly inspire confidence that there was cross-departmental join up on what constitutes levelling up and how how to go about it. Uh, so that was a challenge. But also upon inspection, we looked at I looked at that data and looked at what what constituted a rural uh, community. And it was using data from the 2011 census, just as the 2021-2 census uh, came out. And you think, you know, we've this data comes out every decade. 
yeah. you would have had the data accessible in about two months' time. And that might have fundamentally changed the, the local authorities that, that that fund would have supported. And you would just think that departments would join that up a little bit more and give and, and provide that longer term basis so that we we can avoid issues like that. I, I think that's exactly right. And actually, in my list of funds, I completely forgot about the Rural England Prosperity Fund. And I don't know what's happened to that. I presume it's wrapped up in the in the overall shared prosperity fund number, which I'm not sure. I'm not well, sure. yeah, no, it's on top of it's on top of. So right. it's um, or I think at least it's on top of. I don't think we know much about it at this stage. I may yeah. be mistaken, but I don't think we know much about it at this stage. And I think it's in part because of the reason I outlined that they were so delayed in, in identifying it. The thing I do know about it, it is that it was yet another funding pot that district councils with very limited resources had to apply for this year, which was the probably third or fourth thing that they had to put put resource into. So it's a big challenge for them. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about about devolution and public service reform more generally. Um, we spoke, you and I have spoken previously about how uh, councils are now seen as not just a provider of local public services, but also place shapers and coordinators of local economic growth. Is this a sensible, deliberate move from government, or is it something that's just happened with no great grand plan behind it? Yeah, I don't, so I don't think there is has been any design. So if we just step back and I'll articulate the kind of position that I put out, my um, thinking was that in recent years, there's been a, a huge focus on the role of local authorities in promoting local economic growth. And it wasn't that long ago when national government would say, hold on, we're, we're responsible for growth. We don't need you here. And the question I pose and I don't necessarily know the answer to this is uh, does the focus does the overriding focus from local authorities on promoting local economic growth uh, complement or is in tension with uh, the principles of delivering public um, services and I'm not necessarily sure what the answer is um, but I do think it's it's uh, an important one with some potential implications because it raises issues around more fundamentally where do we want local government to go over the next day and uh, over yeah. the next decade rather and you know my views are that we need to be a little bit more ambitious uh, in our in our approach so lots of organizations have spoken about digital transformation and data analytics and evidence-based public services and I think they're all a given. Everyone would want them. Ironically, we talk about a kind of relational approaches and you could argue that digitization is the antithesis of relational approaches, right? Because it removes, removes some human element. So I think we fundamentally need to think more about the purpose of that service delivery piece and not have the impetus of promoting growth outweigh the the merit of those services and as part of that i think over the last decade we've seen a, a real loss of bandwidth and to some degree imagination in what the next decade is going to look like um and we need to give some consideration to that too and my my two pence on that is that i think pride in place and well-being almost in a kind of utilitarian fashion you know 
can we boost the most pride or can we make our communities the most happy? It should is something that we should and could um, uh, aspire to achieve. Yes, I think that's exactly right. Um, I just want to ask you a little bit about devolution now. So you, you quite rightly highlighted there that in terms of the shared, shared prosperity fund, if there's a combined authority in place, that funding went at that level. But where there wasn't that in place, quite often the, the funding went to district councils, which is at a much more micro level than mayoral combined authorities. So there's quite a bit, you know, it's the same, it's the same pot of funding that's supposed to do similar things, but in some parts of the country it was going ultra local. In other parts it was going to more of a regional level. And that, I think, confused a lot of people, certainly made the bidding or the um, investment plan development process quite difficult, particularly for those mayoral combined authorities where you had, you know, four or five different councils trying to to come together and agree things. But just sort of setting that kind of context aside, do we have the right structure in England at the minute in terms of the tiers of, of, of government? Because it is a real patchwork of different systems in different areas. Yeah, and I should just say, just on the funding element, the Community Renewal Fund went to district councils. I spoke to lots of local enterprise partnerships that were pulling their hair out because they said that district councils are not responsible for economic growth. They have no clue what they're doing. Uh, and on the other hand, I've spoken to uh, local authorities that sit within combined authorities that have said we appreciate that there is some strategic direction needed. But, you know, in the case of London, the needs of central London, the needs of outer London are very, very different. Um, and sometimes those combined authorities are not always uh, the best at accommodating that. And very unhelpfully, the government set out allocations next to each local authority. So even if it went to a combined authority, uh, we saw that um, some local authorities were saying, well, hang on, it says that I've got a, a million pounds next to my name. Where's the million going in my pants? I, I find that really bizarre. I don't know whether it was just an effort to reduce the bidding effort for those councils. But, yeah, you're quite right. They all could see. And in the, in the combined authority, Share Prosperity Fund investment plan that I supported, mm-hmm. the, the councils were not going to accept anything lower than the number that was against well, their, the their name. Of course. Yeah. Well, I think this yeah. is this is the political imp- uh, impetus, isn't it? You know, the, Michael Gove and the other secretaries of state uh, secretaries of state are trying to straddle different political actors, right? They they're working with lots of district councils, particularly in rural areas that happen to be conservative-led councils, who are saying, "Look, we want the funding coming to us. We can deliver and do that." Then they have the county councils who are arguing the same thing. And then they've got some very influential metro mayors who are making the case for funding to go for them. So I think it reflects a a lack of consensus politically rather than any evidence based reasoning around which level is is best equipped to um, deliver that. Which brings me on to devolution. Um, I think it's a I think it's a tough one. You know, if you ask um, an economist, they might say it's really important to create economic geographies and subnational government because that can deliver the strategic stuff that you want to deliver. Economic development is one example. We've just been talking about transport um, might be uh, another. I agree with that. I think metro mayors have been successful. I think there should be uh, coverage across um, 
the country, uh, although as a side note, Metro Mayors is an institution uh, in their infancy, and so mm. someone was asking me the other day, how do we know Metro Mayors are effective? And I, and I, it was difficult to answer because there hasn't been any systematic evaluation of the role of Metro yeah. Mayors. There was some stuff in Greater Manchester recently how devolution had supported tackle health inequalities. But I think we're seeing Metro Mayors go for a little bit of a honeymoon period, actually, in part because we haven't had much experience with a bad Metro Mayor. And we've just seen in Cambridgeshire and Peterborough that um, their Metro Mayor has gone off on leave. They've been placed uh, on an improvement board. So they've been intervened in and there is an improvement board that is overseeing that. So that could all, all change. But broadly speaking, I think uh, subnational governance with or without a metro mayor is a is a good thing where i'm less convinced um is the need to go through an onerous process of reorganization and lots of people in policy circles will look to uh, redcliffe board commission in 1970 69 um and I'm, they will say that, that i'll take your word for it <laughs> yeah there are thereabouts they'll say that that was the missed opportunity basically what redcliffe mod uh, advocates is unitarization across something like 60 or 70 councils so larger local authorities um, delivering all those services so no two tiers and uh, in principle I don't disagree with that because I wouldn't choose the current governance we have as the model yeah. adopt for if I had a blank slate. But I think spending all that time reorganising, which will also create unintended consequences and new issues, is probably not um, where our priority should be now. And we see even with you know the new De- East Midlands devolution deal, some people were happy. Lots of people were saying, well, this is a silly economic geography. It should have included Leicestershire. And so there is a bit of a difficulty in finding the right mix of devolution, I think, that works for people in terms of structures. I think what we can all agree on, though, is that local authorities, combined authorities, need more powers from government because we're far too centralised. And there's lots of easy, easy powers that Europeans have in the bucket loads that government could be and should be and hopefully will be just, um, yeah. evolving at some point. Yeah, no, I, I think that's extremely interesting. And I, and, and I did note in the Chancellor's statement, he was talking about a devolution deal around the northeast of England and being very unspecific about who was involved in that, because I don't think they've decided who's involved in it yet. So um, as a last question, Jack, what bit of advice would you give to someone working in the public sector or in charity or social enterprise or research in particular who wants to make an impact in the way you have? And just to kind of bring it back to where I started from, you know, where I got to know you was on your social media feed and all the wonderful analysis that draws a lot of attention and interest from people. So what how did you get going in that and what would you advise anybody who's interested in doing this sort of thing? Yeah, I think whether you're in a kind of local authority or or not, or you're across the broader public sector, what I've often found is that if you look into any issue, there's any policy area, there's almost a lack of kind of theory underpinning some of that. There are often issues. So, for example, I was looking into 
homelessness the other day. Uh, I found out that we don't know how long people were in homelessness accommodation for. We don't know where local authorities place people in temporary accommodation out there. Borough. There are lots of unknowns to almost any policy area you look at. And I think one of the things I've really enjoyed doing and I would encourage others to do, especially where they are in local authorities and they've got this, the space to create policy that's directly mm. tangible and going to impact a, a place is look at the ideas that are out there and uh, find which ones are in your policy area and how you can enact them. And uh, just as a side note, I think sometimes in local government, we can be a little bit defeatist. And I can already hear people listening to this podcast saying, but Jack, look at the funding situation. And there are lots of things that we can do that don't cost more than time. So, for example, Uh, If we look at communities, we know that communities want agency and ownership over their their affairs. They want to be able to have some decision making power over the things that matter to them. And we also know that 95 percent of local authorities uh, sell off assets, but only 40 percent of them have policies in place to encourage communities to own those assets. You know, these are really easy things that don't have to cost. So encouraging communities yeah. to play a, a more significant role in, in local authorities is is one example. Another example, because I happen to be uh, doing some work on art the other day, is that local authorities have huge resources of art, whether they directly manage them in museums or they've or they don't directly yes, I manage saw them. You were looking at that, actually. Yeah, I saw on your Twitter feed that you were looking into that. Yeah, I mean, I so I think arts and culture is really important. It's been one of those areas that isn't all statutory. Some of it's discretionary, so it's been quite cut quite heavily. And as we've mm. just been talking about in terms of local government finance, local authorities are always going to protect things like social care over arts and culture. So what creative ways can we adopt that are going to allow us to continue to deliver some arts and culture provision and what we see in some communities is that they use some of the art that they either don't have space for or, or, or can't make space for in their museums. And they put them on their local high street and in shop fronts and they work with the business community. And that's often a short term program. But that's one of the things that you can do, I think, that, you know, will promote pride in your community, will give people greater access to public art and so forth. Another example, and, and I'll finish on this. There's a really interesting debate about the roles of parks, particularly in the US at the moment, that we not really have in, in the UK. And um, parks are interesting because we only really conceptualise them in the framework of maintaining them. We don't really think about how we can enhance them. And often when we do, it's really small stuff. So we see, and there's a very good book by a sociologist in the US called Parks for Profit. We see lots of parks trying to become economically sustainable so they they can deliver much more. And I like the idea. Where I am in Barking Dagnum, we've got a huge amount of park space. It's all brilliant. Um, Often, though, other than walking through the park, there's not a reason to be there. Uh, And my challenge to local authorities would be, you know, bring some of those policy challenges together. So we know in some local authorities that they've got in some cases, a decade-long waiting list for allotments. Could you bring bring those allotments in the park, create some additional funding from those allotments, use mm. that to spend on the, 
the swings. It might even go to a small little tea station that can cover the yeah. costs of the, the rewilding efforts that you do. Bring in the community, get them to clean up some of the spaces. You know, there are lots of ways, I think, that we can bridge ideas that are out there to practice on the ground. And that would be, uh, in a very long winded way, um, my suggestion to practitioners in this space. No, it's not at all long winded. There's some excellent practical entrepreneurial ideas there that I think our listeners will be really interested in. So, Jack, that's all we've got time for. Thank you so much for your your time and for the wonderful ideas you shared today. Thanks very much for having me. Well, that was a really timely conversation with Jack. I think it's fair to say that councils are in a perma-poly crisis at the minute, and it's going to take some extraordinary leadership at a local level to navigate the next few years at the very least. Um, from a mutual ventures perspective, I'm obviously very interested in the levelling up fund and the shared prosperity fund. And it was interesting to talk to Jack about what this government's attitude to those might be. And I think we are still expecting to hear about those funding announcements before Christmas. But there will be pressure to spend. And the longer the government delays announcing that funding, the more expensive things are going to get and the less councils are going to be able to do with that funding. I thought a very interesting part of the conversation was about future growth funding for local areas. And I think this is linked to devolution quite a bit, because is central government really going to just bundle up the funding and give it to local areas to use as they see fit without a devolution deal, without an elected leader for an area, because um, I'm not sure I see that happening, but it certainly would make a lot of practical sense for local areas, particularly district councils, not to have to keep bidding for relatively small amounts of funding and using a lot of scarce resource to do that. The last bit I want to highlight is the bit of the discussion with Jack around things that councils can do that don't come with a price tag. So he mentioned things like encouraging community ownership of assets. I think that's a brilliant idea and certainly adds to the resilience of local areas. And there are a lot of other things that can be done. The example from a very entrepreneurial perspective that Jack gave was about thinking about parks. How can you make a park sustainable? Can you introduce entrepreneurial elements to it? Can you uh, bring allotments into a park? Can you think of how the facilities are run, etc.? I think all of that is really interesting. And there are, therefore, things that councils can be thinking about that create resilience, increase the sustainability of public assets without necessarily having a huge price tag attached to it. So that's everything for this episode. Thank you very much for your time. If you want to go back and catch up on any of the previous episodes, you can do so by going onto the Mutual Ventures website and looking at the podcast bit there. Or you can subscribe on any of the usual places where you get your podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, that kind of thing, Apple. So see you next time. <laughs>